democracy, is it enough for us to vote every three years? Is there room for collective decision-making in between the elections? Should 16-year-olds be given the right to vote? Do governments abdicate their responsibility should they choose to hold a referendum rather than to make a decision themselves on our behalf? And if we don't vote in central or, or government elections, do we have a right to complain about the decisions being made that we don't like? I'm Lynn Freeman from RNZ National. We have much to discuss. I've got a lot of questions for our guests. I hope you do too, and we will, as always, leave time for your questions at the end of the hour. Our guests this morning are Oliver Hartwich, who is the Executive Director of the New Zealand Initiative. Previously, he was a Research Fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney, the Chief Economist at the Policy Exchange in London, and an advisor for the UK House of Lords. Catherine Errington is the Executive Director of the Helen Clark Foundation, it's also engaged in encouraging conversations amongst us and with government and very important um, issues that we need to discuss and that we don't discuss often enough. Max Rashbrook is a journalist, author and academic who's written and spoken about many forms of democracy. That includes his book, Government for the Public Good. It examines the failures of market-based reforms and suggests a form of deep democracy, which is something we'll come to, Max, as a way to create governments fit for the 21st century. That's what we want and that's what we need. Um, Max, I thought I would start with you because I, I do like de a good definition. So could you define democracy for us, please? Yeah, well, like, I mean, I think there's, there's lots of definitions of democracy. There's probably as many definitions as there are political theorists. Um, and, and I guess for some people they would say, well, you know, well, there's sort of the folk version, which is, you know, you vote for people every few years and you can kick them out and that's very important and that's your job done. Um, but I'd take a much, I guess, sort of sort of thicker, kind of richer view of what democracy is. Um, I think at the very least it's about, you know, everyone who's capable of doing so, being able to have a full say in the decisions that affect them and in a way that's appropriate to them culturally, which I think is particularly important here because, you know, democracy for Māori might mean something slightly different to what it means for me. Um, that's sort of a bare minimum thing. Um, but I also think it, it's about something that we do together as well. Um, because for me, you know, I believe in democracy, I believe in people participating, but also discussing issues deeply with each other. And it's only when, you know, when we come together and we have really good political debate and public discussion that we actually learn what other people think and we understand the issues more deeply and we bring the wisdom of the crowd to the surface and we come to recognise each other as equals in some sense. Because, um, you know, if you contrast sort of democratic processes with, say, market processes, um, you know, in the market you're only able to buy as much as you have income. Whereas in a democracy, at least in theory, everyone participates as an equal. Now, obviously that doesn't happen because of all sorts of issues around poverty and marginalisation and exclusion and things, but, you know, I think the unfinished task of democracy is genuinely building a place where we might all meet as equals. Lisa, I want to look at the work of the Helen Clark Foundation. I kind of stumbled my way through uh, one of its core um, ideas, which is to get people talking. Um, but, but tell us about the foundation and also its goals, because I know democratic principles are are one of the things that you've looked at? Sure. So we're a public policy think tank uh, based up at AUT in Auckland. And I would say in general, as a think tank, our role is to be a kind of transmission belt between academia and politics. 
um, that's really necessary for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which is that academic research is really, really hard to access. Uh, if you wanted to read a journal article as a member of the public, you'd probably have to pay $30 just to read one article. And if you're going to do any serious kind of research, you need access to thousands and thousands of articles. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's very hard to get to that research. Even though your tax dollars have often paid for it, um, you cannot read it, uh, even if you wanted to. So... Uh, I think one of the, uh, alongside that, you also have kind of the professional structure of academia. A lot of academics are not rewarded for communicating their research to the public. Uh, they're rewarded for publishing it in journals. Um, so you find many academics do little or no media work or communications work. Uh, and as a result, their research can become just quite hard to understand. Uh, so maybe if you did get that journal article and you read it, you're like, what does this even mean? <laughs> and so I think there's a space in the middle between the media who make a lot of content very quickly but it's not necessarily well researched enough for policymakers to just pick up and use and then on the other side academia who take a very long time to produce new contributions to knowledge but that can be hard to access and hard to understand. We sit in the middle there trying to turn academic research into more digestible, easier to read um, things and communicating that both to the media and to the public and also to policymakers. And you've done some really interesting research that we're going to come back to on the themes of today. Oliver, what about the New Zealand Initiative? What's What's the, what's the role? What's the job description? Well, we are a public policy think tank too, and um, Cathy has described what we do quite well. Um, it's a bit of a difficult to explain concept what we think tanks do. My parents, even though I've worked for think tanks now for 16 years, every now and then they still get questions from their friends. So what does Oliver really do? <laughs> and uh, it, it's a mixture of things. So we try to translate academic research into things that other people can understand, including politicians. Um, that is quite hard, not just because these articles are expensive, but because economists can't write for cake. So you have to often translate that. Um, we are also fulfilling, I think, a role where the media simply doesn't have the time anymore to do proper analysis, so somebody else has to do it. And once upon a time, I think the public sector, probably the public service, also did a lot more independent thought and independent research, whereas now that has been politicized, so we don't get quite the level of um, research and analysis out of the public service either. So we're fulfilling that gap, and what we try to do is we try to devise um, ideas, design ideas for a better country. And that can be for education, better education results, for better housing affordability, even fisheries management we covered, social policy. So the idea for our organization is to create a better country that works better for all New Zealanders. We are business funded, but I have a really difficult sales job whenever I try to get new members because um, they typically ask, so what's in it for me? And I say, well, actually nothing. It is a philanthropic engagement, and you join us because you want this country to be better. Ultimately, that will benefit you too, but that's not the goal. So we actually try to create a country that works better for everyone. Max, when uh, Government for the Public Good came out, and you write on this and you talk on this, these issues of democracy and, and fair play, do you get a sense that the government is listening? And I'll, uh, Catherine and Oliver, I'll come back to you as well. You know, you're, you're putting these, all this effort into doing surveys that we'll talk about in a moment, but is anyone listening? Um, I think I think people are. Um, I'm not sure people in the, sort of the commanding heights of government are necessarily. Um, no, you know, I think we need systems of democracy and so systems of government that, you know, rely less on just electing people every few years um, and much more on us getting involved deeply as citizens in shaping policy and doing it together. 
um, you know, really drawing on the wisdom of the crowd. And, you know, we're starting to see more and more of these forums sort of bubble up um, overseas, you know, so things like climate assemblies in the UK um, and France where, you know, 100 or so ordinary citizens, you know, are brought together and tasked with saying, well, what do people actually want climate change policy to look like? Um, you know, systems where local councils put up chunks of their budgets for people to discuss and then allocate directly again as citizens. These things are happening overseas, but we make very little use of them in New Zealand. And um, I think they're still foreign concepts to a lot of people, um, especially to politicians. I think there's a few MPs who get it, but they're in the minority, and so not much is changing at the moment. But I have felt a real desire for these things and real enthusiasm amongst the public. Um, so, you know, I'm optimistic about that things will change in the long run, but not imminently, necessarily. I went and had a look at the turnout for the last election, and that was an interesting election and an interesting year, of course. Uh, so even in that year, I think 81.54% of eligible voters voted. Uh, the lowest age group of 74% was 25 to 35. I find that really astonishing, given that this is the age when people are maybe trying to buy a house if they can and in business and thinking about it. Um, and so voter apathy, we know, is a problem in New Zealand, however proud we are of ourselves of giving women the vote, as we did. Uh, and the Helen Clark Foundation, Catherine, had put out a survey called Engaged Community. So we're going to talk civics at the moment um, and talk about civics. So this is looking at increasing civic participation. But, I mean, do you have any ideas why, why we are really quite apathetic? Yeah, so there's a few answers to that. I think our enemy is cynicism, the kind of despair of thinking that nothing you do uh, will change the systems around you. I, I think that is the the enemy if you're talking about how to deal with low voter turnout. Um, the, the work we did on civic participation was looking at local governments and our turnout, that, that, those were the figures for the, our national elections, yeah. which globally are actually really good. Uh, I'm not saying that's perfect or that it's good enough, but that's a high rate if you compare it to, say, the United States where voter turnout's in the 40s. Um, but our local election turnout is abysmal, um, and uh, we were discussing some of the reasons for that in our paper. And just one example is uh, the, the decline in the media and just the, the number of journalists we had uh, has declined. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it's declined significantly in the last 20 years. Uh, media Watch did a segment about comparing a week in 1998 and a week in 2018, looking how many stories were there about Hutch City Council. And in the two-week period they looked at in 1998, there were 20 and in 2018 there were none because there's no longer a reporter anymore covering that beat uh, and it's not the sort of thing that's going to make national news so it just doesn't get done and how are people going to vote in an election where they have no idea what's at stake who the candidates are what the issues are uh, and so that's just one area we, we identified and, and it's something where, where things are slowly happening to address that you see the local government I think the local democracy program uh, that, that is funding journalists now to cover councils. Um, it's, it's a drop in the bucket, but it's an important bucket to start putting drops mm. in. And, and can I just add to that? I mean, sort of if you look internationally, I think the research suggests that one of the big suppressors of vote turnout, and also even just people's basic interest in politics and discussing politics, is economic inequality. 
um, you know, it's very strongly correlated with falling turnout. And I think that's because, you know, a lot of people who are in poverty, you know, find it hard to engage anyway, mm. but also they have a belief in it. Sometimes I think it's true that when there are these huge inequalities of, of wealth, you know, other people have much more influence than they do and have sort of rigged the game already or are determining what subjects get on the agenda or what the results are. So I think those economic issues are a huge mm. part of the problem as well. Pretty entrenched. I'd like to come back and see if we can have a conversation about how to change that. I think you've got some ideas, Oliver, on, on civics, because uh, there's been research from the New Zealand Initiative also into this area. That's right. Um, we did um, an, a representative opinion poll uh, in February last year, and uh, we just wanted to establish how much New Zealand voters actually know about politics and about how the system works. So we asked a range of questions and got some interesting answers. So my favorite was actually asking whether they even knew ministers. And we asked specifically, who is the minister for the environment? Um, should we actually check this here? <laughs> um, well, we got 5% correct answers. And it was David Parker, of course. We asked the minister for education, um, Chris Hipkins, of course, 29%. That was not encouraging. About 50% actually understood how to get into Parliament um, through MMP, because there are, of course, two different ways to become an MP. Um, so MMP is not properly understood. Um, we found, for example, one of the big questions in late 2019, just about a couple of months before we did the survey, was um, the zero carbon bill in Parliament and which parties would support it. And there was a lot of discussion whether the National would join of the government and make it a bipartisan thing. And Simon Bridges, as leader, had to invest a great deal of his political capital in getting his party to agree. Well, two months later, we asked, um, do you know which party supported that bill? It doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not, but just do you know? 19%. So all this excitement in the Wellington bubble for something that only 19% of voters remember two months later. That tells you something. And by the way, one f final thing, maybe, foreign policy. Um, believe it or not, 56% of Kiwis believe we have a military alliance with the UK. If anything ever happens to us, someone please tell the Brits, we think you have to support. <laughs> so th there's a bit of a problem here. And you know what? Um, you could probably do similar surveys in other countries. And in fact, we were inspired by surveys in Australia and Germany. I mean, in Germany, a majority of the people believe that uh, Russia was a member of NATO. Okay, right. <laughs> So um, we are not unusual in that respect, but that shouldn't actually be an excuse. We have to do a lot better because if you really don't know who is in government, who the minister is, I mean, how could you then at the next election assign blame for things that you don't like? So we think we have to do better than that. You were telling me just before about the, the, the model of civics being compulsory, the t education of teaching of civics being compulsory in Germany. How does that work? Yeah, well, um, for obvious reasons. I mean, we had, I'm, I'm German, as you probably don't know, um, uh, <laughs> except I'm about to take New Zealand citizenship in 10 days, so I'm really proud of that. <laughs> so uh, we had a national catastrophe, of course, between 33 and 45, and for very good reasons, um, people said never again, so we have to do something to prevent the rise of another dictatorship. So we have one of the most complicated political systems with all sorts of checks and balances that would make another Hitler impossible. But we also made sure that we actually teach civics and history because we wanted people to have a chance to have an informed conversation on these matters. And so when you're going through the German school system, basically every year you learn something about how parliament works and how democracy is supposed to work. There is a federal office of political education, which sounds very Orwellian, 
But it's actually quite a good institution because what they do is they spread political education, civics, to schools, to adult education. I remember one um, poster campaign they had around Germany. Um, nice picture. If you don't care for me, I will leave you your democracy. And I thought, well, actually, that's a good way of putting it because you have to keep this alive. It's not enough to go to the vote every three, four, five years, depending which country you live in. You actually have to care for it. There has to be a Republican spirit, a civic spirit, because you have to fill it with life. Mm. What, do you, what do you think on that model, Catherine? Do you think there's value here for having compulsory civics? Is that part of our problem with lack of education? Uh, I think it's uh, it's not something I've done research on personally, but I think it's a fascinating idea. What, what it reminded me of was the way someone got a plane. I was just looking up in my notes. I had something there on it above the headquarters of Facebook that said, you broke democracy. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, huh, it's too harsh to be entirely true, but, but there's something to that. You know, we live in this, this new age with new platforms um, that are posing new challenges to, uh, to our systems. And, uh, yeah, that, that's what it made me think about <laughs> Max, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm absolutely an advocate of, of better citizenship education. I mean, it happens patchily in schools at the moment. You know, you can do it as part of the uh, sort of the um, social sciences curriculum, but I think the research shows that there's long, not a lot of good resources for it and teachers aren't confident teaching it. So I think we could do better there and really helping students understand what it, what it is to exercise power and to be an active citizen. My, my only sort of caveat around it and sort of touches on the, the research that Oliver was talking about is that I don't always know that those kinds of surveys of people's sort of high-level political knowledge are actually a really good measure of their capacity as citizens. I mean, in some countries, like in the US, you know, they go around and they say to people, do you know, can you name the three branches of government? Yeah, and of course people can't name the, you know, the executive and the legislature and the judiciary. And people say, aha, obviously, you know, citizens, you know, aren't capable of being more engaged. But those kinds of things, you know, just lacking that sort of high-level political knowledge doesn't stop people from having a really informed opinion, for instance, about the lack of good health services in their area, um, you know, or the transport problems in their area, or the way that the welfare state fails to support people, you know, the inadequacy of benefits. You know, people are experts in their own lives, um, and I think that's a really profound factor. So although I do think we could, you know, do more to educate people, I also don't think we maybe need to be quite so concerned about their capacity. I, I certainly don't think we should see that as a barrier to finding ways straight away of deepening their ability to get engaged. Do you have thoughts on the conversation? There's been some very good points put forward from younger people that they should be eligible to vote at 16. They certainly seem very aware. Uh, you can see the school strikes at the moment. I know that's, that's one campaign, but there seems to be a, a political will and engagement and interest and, and discussion. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting. I um, One time when I was here previously, uh, someone who's in the audience got me along to... Uh, talk to their class, uh, their sort of civics class, um, and they were having a debate, the students were having a debate about lowering the voting age, uh, and most of them were against it um, uh, because they didn't sort of really trust their own capacity uh, to engage, you know, at, at 16. 
Um, I personally think it's a bit blurry. You know, there's sort of, are you an adult at 16? Are you an adult at 18? It's quite a fuzzy sort of area. And when it's fuzzy, I sort of think, well, go for the, the lower bound, probably. So I support um, people being able to vote at 16. Uh, but it's not, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that's going to solve, you know, the problems we have to any great extent. Even in Germany, where you have the civics education, Oliver, I think you were saying the voting age is still 18? Still 18. I think there were some experiments in some of the states with voting age at uh, local elections, but for state elections and certainly for federal elections, it's 18. I think um, one interesting example for lowering it is from the Scottish independence <laughs> referendum, uh, where they did, as I understand it, do uh, a 16-year-old voting age, because it was an issue of such importance. And the, that age group turned out at huge numbers and have persistently, as they've grown up, uh, kept voting. Uh, at higher numbers than other young people. So I think there's some really good reasons to think about it. If you can create a... While, while people are still at school, if you can create a culture where voting is something that you do, that might pay off for a really long time. Uh, so there's good, there's good reasons, I think, to lower it. I personally do support it. Um, I mean, I don't think capacity is what defines if you're ready to vote or not. You know, that's not... There's plenty of people we would probably think are incapable in various ways who are perfectly able to vote. That's not the threshold, you know, it's about how do we design the system to be fairest? And yeah, I think I think there's a very strong case for lowering it actually. And, and there's a real issue too around, you know, the interest of future generations, I think, because, you know, when I said earlier democracy is about people being able to vote on the issues that affect them. Well of course the decisions we take now will affect, you know, people who are far too young to vote. In fact people not yet born but they don't have a vote in the system. And it's one of the reasons why democracy you know, struggles to take into account the interests of future generations, because they're not here and they're not voting. Just like it often doesn't take into account the interests of the environment, you know, which is incredibly important, but which can't itself vote. And so sort of trying to take slightly better account of the impact on future generations is another reason to slightly lower the voting age, I think. Well, let's have a look at that issue of, of apathy then for the local body. Let's concentrate then on the local body elections. I mean, there's some conversation in Wellington, there's postal voting and that a lot of people don't seem to like it. What do we do, though, inherently? If you want to vote, you'll find a way. If you really feel that this is my right and this is my responsibility, I'm jolly well going to vote, even if, if, even if voting online or is, is difficult. But what do we do, Max, do you think? We'll, we'll all discuss this. How can we attack the apathy? Because it's, it's an important issue and we, we're not addressing it, I don't think. We're just going, oh, well. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I mean, a, a huge part of it, I think, is poverty and related mm -hmm. sort of marginalisation and that's just people who are very disengaged, people who don't think that anything's going to change. You know, that's sort of some of the apathy that Cathy was talking about earlier. So, you know, addressing the material conditions of people's existence is huge. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, and some of the young people I talk to, you know, just don't even, you know, they haven't grown up in a culture of sort of engagement in, in politics. Um, and, you know, we don't have a lot of sort of people, more people used to be involved in charities and churches and trade unions and things where they saw people doing politics and discussing politics. And a lot of those institutions have dwindled and we need to find ways of sort of restoring them, I think. Um, and specifically at the local level, um, you know, I think there's a real bind where local councils don't have a lot of power, you know, and so people think, well, what's the point in getting engaged? And then, you know, 
um, you know, you don't always have the highest quality sort of representatives getting elected, and then people think, well, why should we give power to local councils? And then the cycle just, you know, perpetuates itself. Yeah. I mean, you looked into this when you were looking at increasing civic participation. What, what were some of the ideas, Cathy, that came through? Uh, so we were focused on that local government yeah, level yeah. and um, trying to connect the people that live in an area to the local government. Uh, and so, yeah, we had recommendations around um, the things like the local democracy reporting program. Uh, we thought that's a good start, need a lot more of it. Um, we need to have good uh, systems where... Uh, councils or local boards can consult with relevant community groups um, and that that can build understanding of how important local governments are. For example, a lot of climate change policy is implemented and decided at local government level. Um, you say, I don't know if you follow any Auckland news, but there's a big battle going on in Onehunga at the moment in Auckland about a low-traffic neighbourhood concept, which is an essential climate change measure to take to lower our very high rates of private vehicle use. Um, it, if we don't take initiatives like that, we're not going to, to meet our targets. Um, but, you know, we love our cars in New Zealand. It's a big change for people, uh, and it's... Uh, some people are, are not taking it well. That is a policy battle happening entirely at local government level. Um, there's great reasons to want to engage in local government. There's very important decisions being taken, and it's about making sure people feel b both able to know what is even happening at local government level and, secondly, understand how to influence it. I mean, it, it, we seem to get hung up on rates for local bodies. all about the rates, isn't it, and the rate increase and not, and not much else. It's, it, and we've got to go beyond that. I mean, I wonder if many people even these days make su submissions or feel that if they make a submission, local or central government level, that, that their voice will be heard. Is that a problem for local governments too, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the example I gave before, they had done, um, they were changing the way they consulted with communities and put up a they wanted to do a consultation about that and got no submissions at all mm. <laughs> from anybody. Yeah, but, but then I, but then I think, and I, and I hear this from from councillors as well. And I was saying this earlier. You know, I say, why don't you find ways to get people more deeply engaged? And they say, well, but but no one even you know submits on our consultations. And I just think, well, maybe that's a problem with the consultations. You know, not with people, um, because you know you're just being asked to sort of fill out a couple of boxes and write a few lines with no guarantee that your input will make any difference whatsoever. And very often you don't even get the courtesy of an email afterwards that says, here's why we made this decision, here's why we didn't find these reasons persuasive, here's why we found these reasons persuasive, you know, voila, the process. You know, that's the sort of bare minimum thing that I think councils could do, but much more than that. You know, if councils gave us much more profound ways of getting engaged, you know, that weren't just being consulted or voting every three years, you know, if you could come together and directly, you know, allocate parts of the council's budget or be part of a local citizen's jury that helped to actually determine policy and, you know, do the trade-offs together as citizens. I mean, I think far more people would get engaged with that because they would know that it was meaningful. Here we go, round of applause. <laughs> Max Rashbrook for council. Yeah. <laughs> Oliver, is there anything that we can... You mentioned before the civics education. What about the, the, the local government, central government situation um, in, in Germany or another country? Is there anything that we can learn from elsewhere? Absolutely. Um, I think the problem with local government in New Zealand is that it's pathetically weak. 
it's very unpopular. People don't want to give it more power and money. But if you just look at um, the state of local government compared internationally, 94% of all taxes raised in New Zealand go to central government. So there's 6% left for local government in the future. It might be even less because um, the government's also not taking care of water. So the OECD average is about two-thirds, by the way. And there are some countries where central government accounts for only 20% of all taxes. So New Zealand is really the outlier here. We have centralized everything that can be centralized. We have weakened local government. We are not, not attracting the right people to local government because they have limited say. And that obviously doesn't work too well. And since you asked about other countries that we could learn from, well, we can learn from countries like um, my other favorite country, Switzerland. I'm a great fan of everything Swiss because everything works. Um, you know, the Swiss are just like the Germans, but nobody hates them. <laughs> Switzerland is a remarkable country. So for those of you who haven't been to Switzerland, country the size geographically of Canterbury. Um, 8.8 .8 million people, 2,200 councils. New Zealand has 78, plus 26 cantons. Each canton, each council with their own independent income tax. Now that sounds like madness, except it works. The way it works is actually everything is decentralized in Switzerland. So the cantons, it's basically regional government. They take care of education, for example. The councils run the fire service. Everything is basically devolved. Federal government in Bern doesn't really do much. And actually, you only have seven ministers in the national government in Switzerland. And these ministers are from all parties because there is an all-party, all-time coalition has been for decades. When I asked um, people in Switzerland, so where is your opposition in all of this then? And they said, well, the opposition, that's the people. Okay. Um, so you have devolved everything in Switzerland and it works remarkably well. On top of that, of course, you have... Um, direct democracy. So it's not just that you vote in your councillors or your local MPs. No, no, you actually vote on the issues. The way it works is actually that, for example, for federal issues in Switzerland, the parties have to work together because it's an all-party, all-time coalition. Well, if the people don't like it, it takes 100,000 signatures and the whole thing goes to a binding referendum. Same happens in the cantons, same happens in the um, uh, councils. When we took a business delegation to Switzerland um, a few years ago, we actually happened to be there on one of those referendum Sundays. And it was fascinating. So at the national level, the Swiss voted on phasing out nuclear power. And on the local level, the local council where we stayed voted on whether they needed five, Swiss, five million Swiss francs tunnel. So everything in between is being voted on. And so there is constant participation in the process of democracy. There's another thing that actually works really well in Switzerland. Because so much decision-making happens at the local level, the media is vibrant. So in this tiny country of Switzerland, you have 350 daily and weekly newspapers. Imagine that. But it's needed because um, in, in New Zealand, of course, there's hardly any coverage of local government left. When we talked about up, uh, Lower Hutt late, uh, earlier, in Switzerland, you need that because otherwise, what would you know about your next upcoming referendum? You would want to have this kind of engagement. So I think... The Swiss have kept the democracy remarkably alive. I mean, not everything is perfect with referenda, I'm not saying that, but I think the degree of civic engagement and participation is so much stronger in Switzerland. That would be my inspiration for New Zealand. Are there any pockets, though, of the population that, we were talking about disadvantaged people before, Max, weren't we, that don't vote? What's, what's the turnout, or is it compulsory? Well, it's not compulsory, no. The turnout is much higher in local elections, except what I would say is it doesn't even matter too much what the turnout is in these elections because what really matters in Switzerland are the referenda. 
So um, as people said, well, actually, the elections, you can kind of discard them. That doesn't really matter. What really happens where the political music plays is in the referenda and on issues you get people together. And, and the turnout for those highs. And the turnout, it, well, it depends on the issue, of course. If people really care for an issue because it's controversial, they will turn out. But the other thing I'd say about Switzerland is they do this regularly. So they have four Sundays every year where they vote on local, cantonal, and federal issues. And they've been doing this for decades, or centuries, really. And therefore, there is an established practice of that. People know how it works. When we have a referendum in New Zealand, of course, it comes as a maybe now once in two or three years thing. Then we talk about a flag referendum, or we might talk about privatization. Some of them are binding, some of them are not. We don't quite know how this game works. I think you have to do this regularly because you keep practicing democracy, and I think you get better at it. I feel like one thing that should be pointed out with a Swiss example is that they gave women the vote in 1971. But they did it in a referendum. <laughs> Which is a terrible way to do it. You know, they, no. put, they put it to a referendum. The Swiss are terribly proud of that because they say we are the only country in the world that gave women the vote in a referendum. They also they put it to a referendum in the 50s and it lost. Um, <laughs> and then they had another crack in the 70s and it got through. Not by much. Um, so... I mean, th that's really, I think, what has to be brought up in referendums is that they are a terrible way to deal with minority rights uh, and can be very, very punishing. Um, and, and Switzerland suffers from that. You, you, there's a, they banned new mosque construction. Uh, it was one referendum that passed in Switzerland. They, they made the front page of the New York Times for an ad, that, uh, an election ad in one of their referendums that showed black hands grabbing Swiss passports. And it, it was... The, so it can fuel very, yeah, very ugly things. And, yeah, you end up giving women the vote in 1971 if you wait for men to come around to being OK with it, apparently. But it was, so there, there are problems. <laughs> I think you had some examples. Was it California, too, that had some interesting... California has a system where you can initiate a binding referendum um, quite easily with signatures and it's become almost professionalised that you have lobby groups that go around and collect these signatures all the time on particular issues um, and I mean the, the problem is, it becomes clear you know if you went out to the public and you said do you want to pay less tax they'd be like yes like, do you want more hospitals also yes and that's basically what's happened in California they voted to gut one of the main taxes that got the state revenue it was a kind of property tax that just absolutely gutted it uh, and they've never fixed that problem uh, it remains and the Cal California budget is in a state of crisis um, and, you know, if you look at California as a proportion of the US economy, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's a huge chunk of it. And the state is in a very precarious situation because they have gone to the public to ask, do you want lower taxes and more public services? And, you know, that's what you get. I mean, <laughs> so, that's an obvious yeah. way of not, how not to do a referenda. <laughs> and it, you have to actually combine the spending with the taxation. And that's what they do in Switzerland. That's one of the features I find really good, actually, about it. So we all know these um, legacy projects that politicians would like to leave, you know, a sports stadium here or memorial there. And uh, they basically try to create a monument to themselves, leaving that and let the taxpayers pay for them. Well, in Switzerland, that kind of stuff goes to a referendum and people are asked, do you want to pay taxes for that? And then you have the costs and the benefits on the ballot sheet and people then say, well, actually, we don't care for your legacy project and that's fine with us. Thank you. <laughs> Max, let's, let's have a look at referenda in the New Zealand context, shall we? Because 2020, also an interesting year for those two referenda. 
Um, and I, I heard arguments from people saying, well, we shouldn't have to, particularly perhaps the end of life. That's, that shouldn't be us. We voted in the government. They should make that decision. So can a government be attacked for trying to abdicate, <laughs> making difficult decisions by going to the people and putting it back in the hands of the people? What do you think about referenda? Um, I've, I've got mixed feelings about referenda. I'm not, I'm not wholly against them um, in all situations. And I think they're important on constitutional issues. You know, if you're changing the rules of the game... Like MMP? Like MMP, mm -hmm. then, yeah, absolutely, you know, referendum is, is appropriate. Beyond that, um, I mean, I think Oliver makes a good point that, you know, with a very strong political culture and very careful controls... You know, referenda can have some advantages, but they also have the drawbacks that, that Cathy's pointed out. I mean, I also am not that enthusiastic about them because, um, I mean, firstly, I mean, even the way that Oliver's described them, I'm not sure that they're really great at getting people to do trade-offs. And democracy is basically about trade-offs. You know, I mean, it's one of the reasons why it's so disappointing. You know, democracy isn't about you getting your way. It's about people coming to a collective view, you know, a compromise everyone can live with. Um, and that, you know, and so, you know, just saying I want X isn't really sort of doing politics in the fullest sense. You know, saying I want to do X and I accept that that means we can't do Y because there's a limited budget. That That is doing democracy. You know, that's what councils have to do. Um, and I, not, I don't think referenda are, allow, are like a really sophisticated way of allowing you to do those trade-offs. And also, I mean, it may work reasonably well in Switzerland, but in a referendum there's no guarantee that anyone who's voted has actually thought about the issues. Um, you know, and I'm a big believer, like I said, in people creating forms of democracy where people can come together, meet each other, have to listen to other people's views, have to reflect, have to change their opinions in light of better evidence and more compelling arguments. Um, you know, in a forum like a citizens' jury or a citizens' assembly guarantees you that. A referendum doesn't guarantee that any of that has happened. So you've got you've got the crowd acting, but you're not necessarily you don't necessarily get the wisdom of the crowd. That's my reservation. And that point that Oliver made too about binding and non-binding, mm. I find really you're kind of voting, but you still don't know what's going to happen at the end. Is that is that sensible? To, I mean, should all referenda be um, look, I mean, I, I, I have mixed feelings about that. Because you could argue that's democratic if most people vote for something. Yeah, um, and, well, I mean, but there's complexities about claiming mandates for all sorts of things. I mean, because politicians will say, well, we have a mandate. I mean, but loosely speaking, they have a mandate to govern, but, you know, the number of their supporters or voters who actually understand and support any given policy of theirs might be quite small, might be well under 50%. So do you have a mandate for that? Another thing I think about talking about referenda, I mean, a lot of them in New Zealand come from petitions, and we have a lot of petitions in New Zealand. Um, and I look at people, you know, pulling together petitions, getting, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 signatures. They hand it to a politician, and then it dies, you know? There's nothing that has to happen from that process. Whereas, you know, and I'd favour something like... The, uh, the Finns have a basically like a public sort of bill crowdsource legislation website where you can put up a bill that you want to go before Parliament and if it gets 50,000 signatures, 
you know, the equivalent of a petition, then it goes into the, the legislative process, a bit like a private, like a member's bill that MPs can put up. And so that actually gives people a tangible reward. I mean, it doesn't guarantee that the bill passes, but it gets into the parliamentary system, it has to be debated. It gives them a tangible reward for getting all those signatures in a way that our current petition system doesn't. Cathy, do you take any lessons from the the referendum process that New Zealand went through? I mean, we were talking just before some of the ad campaigns were, were a bit disturbing, I thought. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, we, as you may know, um, we took a position in the cannabis referendum, which is unusual for us. We're usually a research think tank. We don't... Um, so we're not campaigners, uh, but but we saw a real dearth of people uh, willing to stick their neck out and say that cannabis should be legalised. And we said, this is what we think the research shows pretty clearly, that it's a better way of managing things. Uh, so we, we did get involved. Um, and yes, like you say, uh, referendums in New Zealand are not covered by the Electoral Act, so it's a bit of a uh, wild west uh, in terms of what, ad campaigns can be run and, and how the financing around it works. Um, and I, I overall, I thought it was a really disappointing decision to push an issue like drug law reform to referendum. It's a profoundly unequal issue. I mean, with euthanasia, you could say, well, at least death comes for us all, right? Like, that issue does affect us all equally. Um, drug law does not. Uh, we've got nearly half of arrests for cannabis are, are young Māori men and the the reality of that and who is paying the price for, for criminalisation of cannabis, it's deeply, deeply unequal. Uh, and, and so I, I thought it, I wish it hadn't gone to referendum at all. Um, and what it has done as a result of a very, very narrow failure in the vote uh, is it's kicked the can down the road and it's given politicians a reason to be gutless and not grasp the nettle of an issue which is... It is divisive. People don't agree in either major political party. There's no unanimity among their supporters or even among their MPs over what the best approach is. And those kind of issues politicians find hard and where this has allowed them to kick the can down the road. And it's, it's a real, real shame. And I think the Prime Minister's position was a nonsense, let's be real. Oh, I can't say my position because I want New Zealanders to make up their own mind. I mean, we would have all made up our own minds anyway. Uh, what was she thinking? But, you know, that, that's, that's what we did because, I mean, uh, the politicians have always been like that. I mean, if you look at another um, controversial issue, uh, homosexual law reform, if you'd put that to referendum, could well have gone down. And, and look at how they behaved. You know, Doug Graham stood outside the room to make sure that homosexual law reform had enough votes to pass, and then he voted against it. Um, that is what politicians are like, and referendums on these controversial issues give them a way to, to be gutless. So I, I, I think on that issue, it shouldn't have gone to referendum, and now they need to find a way forward uh, to I think the to Greens are determined... Um, Aren't they? They're still they're still keeping it in there. Um, oh, I think a lot of people are still determined, and it's it's going to be about well, given there is a need to change, uh, how do you how do you do it? You know, just find a way. Mm. But yeah, it's a real real shame what happened in the cannabis referendum. I agree. I think it was an abdication of responsibility. 
which probably means we should also talk about the functioning of Parliament as such. Uh, yes, I think let's let's do the big picture and the the, the, the structure, the way centralised governments work. I mean, you were an advisor for the UK House of Lords, yes. either, weren't you? So you've seen the House. I mean, from the outside, it, it feels very complicated. It's not something that we have uh, wholeheartedly adapted here in New Zealand. Of course, we did away with that tier. What what are the advantages and disadvantages? Do you think? I'm a great fan of the House of Lords. Um, I think I'm, I'm in a minority with that. Um, most people think it's a relic, it should be abolished, it's not democratic, and that's exactly what I why I like it. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I happened to have my first job after my PhD in the UK House of Lords, and it was just fascinating. Um, because, okay, you can level all sorts of arguments against the Lords for not being democratic and so on, but actually it doesn't really matter because they don't have power. Um, you have, I think, currently about 800 peers. So for every question under the sun, you will find the four or five best qualified experts in Britain in the House of Lords. And you can have fantastic debates with a lot of expertise, sometimes you know, decades of experience in individual questions with the peers. And because they don't have power, they basically just play the role of a legislative repair shop. So they get their bills from the Commons. Then you have these experts going through them, and they find out whether technically it makes sense. Media don't really cover the House of Lords that much, so you can actually talk freely between the different parties. Party politics is relatively absent from the Lords. And then you get this whole package back to the Commons, repaired with 200 amendments, and they all made good technical sense. And by the way, for a peer turning up for every sitting of Parliament in a year, at the time I worked there, I think it was worth about £25,000. So basically, you've got all of these extremely well-qualified people volunteering their time to fix legislation, make it better and leave the party politics out of it. That's changing a little bit, so there's some party politics coming in, especially from the minor party that don't have much representation in the Commons, so they are trying to take that into the Lords, but actually that is destroying the spirit of the Lords quite a bit. So actually what I found there was just an incredibly well-run, civilized place with really high-level debates, with not much party politics, and actually focused on the issue of decent legislation. So I think that worked quite well, but you can't easily replicate that. Could we do it with another tier of, of government? Um, potentially, but I think that might take a very different form in New Zealand. Uh, there's a very interesting report that came out a few years ago called Mati Kemai, um, which was uh, process led by Moana Jackson and Margaret Mutu. And was sort of looking at what would constitutional transformation um, mean for Māori. And sort of the concepts they were working with there is that sort of if you read the treaty through, it implies that there's a kawanatanga sphere where sort of Pākehā make decisions for Pākehā, there's a rangatiratanga sphere where Māori make decisions for Māori, and then there's a relational sphere where the cultures work together. Um, and sort of following that logic through, and this sort of report was based on I think about 250 hui, so itself like a really deeply democratic process, they didn't sort of, the report didn't suggest a really specific model, but it said, well, there's a range of models which could, could include things like, you know, say, a Māori parliament or an upper house um, of parliament that's 50-50 Māori and Pākehā um, to, you know, put a completely different lens over these decisions and think about are they working um, for both cultures. So I think there's lots of exciting potential options out there, but they'll have to look, you know, distinctively different for a distinctively different country. I thought, oh, we've been looking at this, obviously, from the voter perspective. Um, Oliver, you've been playing 
a computer game, I think, that has given you an insight. D Democracy Four. Oh, it may, maybe from the from the since we have no politicians here, um, I, I thought the, the outcome of that was quite interesting. A little bit about what they're up against. Oh, oh you read our newsletter. Yes, um, I we have a newsletter that goes out every Friday. Should all subscribe, by the way. Um, the, um, there are always two pieces of political commentary in one piece of satire. Sometimes people don't realize that. Um, um, so I had the funny task of writing the satire piece that week. And um, so I th thought I wrote about Democracy 4 as a new computer game. I installed over the summer break, <clears throat> and it um, allows you to be um, president or prime minister or chancellor um, virtually of, um, I think, six or seven different countries in the simulation. New Zealand is not one of them. The closest we have is Australia. Germany is in France, Italy, um, US, of course, Canada. So um, I played this game, and I failed miserably. So I tried to do things that I thought were right, and um, I'm you will probably agree with my choices. I tried to run a liberal economy and uh, free markets, and um, I think I did all the right things, and of course I got kicked out after four years. Um, so I lost miserably. I think I failed to win uh, double digits in the election. I was totally unpopular. It was absolutely a complete disaster. It didn't work. And uh, then I wrote a column, and this is probably the one that you read, where I said, oh, that's the last job I want to have politician because I would be terrible. And I wouldn't enjoy it, and um, I can only admire people doing it. And then I got um, a tweet in response to that column from a reader saying, hey, um, I haven't played Democracy 4 yet, but I played Democracy 3. Have you tried this and that and that? And all sorts of policy that didn't make any sense whatsoever, but I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. So I came in, I lowered taxes. Well, actually, I abolished all taxes. I did exactly what California does. Um, then I increased spending. I increased spending on all sorts of things that I didn't believe in. And um, then afterwards, I went and found the campaign button so I could do all sorts of stunts. I had cafe, coffee with um, workers at a workers' cafe. I um, did judo with the special forces. Um, I did all sorts of photo ops and stunts. I became popular. I was seen as a strong leader. And I won three terms. And they would have probably made me dictator for life if I'd asked them to. <laughs> um, the thing was, um, from a public choice economics perspective, perhaps not terribly surprising. Um, I could have predicted that, but it was really a bit disappointing because, I mean, for someone who believes in democracy and thinks that's a nice way of finding the right decisions, it was a nice reminder, perhaps, that democracy is not the guarantee of finding the truth or even the best solutions. Sometimes you just have to do what voters want you to do, even though it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And that was quite sobering as a reminder, but it's probably true. <laughs> Although I, d I do like the saying about democracy that democracies don't necessarily make any fewer mistakes in other systems, but they do even fix them more quickly. <laughs> I think that's a nice sort of, you know, limited ambitions view of how good democracy can be. Well, I think of democracy as an aspiration. It's not a destination. No one has got there, but we have to keep trying. It's the right aspiration. We have assumptions of what left-wing and, and right-wing mean. I went down a bit of a Google hole last night trying to work out how to prepare for this session because it's such a big topic. Um, and there's some... Uh, fasc fascinating data about, well, what does being left-wing and right-wing really mean? And uh, what do people who describe themselves as left or right-wing, what do they actually believe? Uh, and there's a set of data out of the United Kingdom from YouGov who do their opinion polling in the UK and have done so for many years. And they, they survey 
people and asked, are you left or right wing? And 7% of self-described right wing British voters said they wanted the government to have a significant or dominant role in the economy. Um, nearly half, 48%, thought the minimum wage was too low. And 47% thought that the government should nationalise the railways. Uh, so, so what that suggests is that right wing economics is pretty unpopular, uh, even among their own supporters. Uh, on the other side, you had self-described left-wing voters, and what were the most right-wing opinions they held? And number one was that school discipline is too soft. <laughs> it was about 59% agreed with that. Um, the criminal justice system is too soft. That was up there as well. And uh, to me, quite shocking, 40% of self-described left-wing British voters supported capital punishment. So, the, um, so the, they were what you might call cultural um, uh, objections that were very divisive among the left coalition, whereas uh, the, the right-wing coalition saw a real fracture on, on economic issues. Um, and yeah, we thought that was quite interesting. I'd love one of your two foundations or initiatives to do that research in New Zealand. It would be fascinating. Good place to finish. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking our guests this morning, Max Rashbrook, Catherine Errington and Oliver Hartwich.